morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. We begin a new series today through the letter to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we begin by saying Jesus is the answer. You've probably heard that phrase before. And in fact, it was even made into a song in 1973 by a Christian artist named Andre Crouch. I'm not going to sing it for you, but some of you have probably heard Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. And while that phrase, Jesus is the answer, is a great thing to say or to sing, we might ask, well, practically, what does that mean? Practically, what does it look like for Jesus to be the answer? How should the gospel, the good news of Jesus, get applied to the questions and to the problems of our lives? And friends, that is what this letter, 1 Corinthians, does. Now, some of the Apostle Paul's other letters have some real deep theological dives into the content and the meaning of the gospel, like Galatians or Romans. They offered us a detailed analysis of what the gospel is, but 1 Corinthians offers us a detailed explanation of what the gospel does. You see, letters like Galatians explain why Jesus is the answer. Letters like 1 Corinthians demonstrate how the gospel answers. Letters like Romans contain much gospel exposition. Letters like 1 Corinthians contain much gospel application. Now, while this letter, like all of Paul's letters, is theological, he writes this far less with the heart of a theologian and far more with the heart of a pastor. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is shepherding a wayward and struggling church back to the gospel waters. Because the church in Corinth desperately, desperately needed the gospel to be applied to them. Because as we're shortly going to see, the church in Corinth was a dumpster fire. It was a mess. And this letter was written to put out fires. This letter was written to answer the fires, to answer every problem that the church was facing with the gospel. The gospel is the answer. It's the solution to the problems that you're facing. And this is how you apply the gospel. 
This is how the gospel is to be lived and applied to the problems you're facing. Now, the city of Corinth, to which Paul was writing, was uh, the heart of an important trade route in the ancient world. And like many other cities that were part of big, important trade routes and had all kinds of people traveling through it all the time, Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality, for religious diversity, and for corruption. And ultimately, we're going to see, so did the young church in Corinth struggle with those very things. According to Acts chapter 18, Paul spent 18 months or a year and a half in Corinth founding this church. And this letter that we call 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 54-55, about five years after the church was founded in Corinth. And in that time, problems have emerged, and Paul, who founded the church, has been called. Paul, there are problems. We need some help. And with this in mind, we're going to find that 1 Corinthians is really less one kind of cohesive book, and it's really more a letter that has a series of short essays or sermons, each one addressing a problem in the Corinthian church. So we're going to find repeatedly as we study through this, basically Paul will spend time, he'll define, here's the problem, this is what's going on, and then here's how we apply the gospel to that problem. Here's the problem, and here's the gospel. Here's the problem, and here's the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the answer. It's the answer to the problems that you're facing. And now, the main challenge that the church in Corinth was facing is actually the exact same challenge that we are facing in the church today. You know, some of the New Testament letters, like the letter of 1 Peter, was written to encourage a church that was being persecuted by the world. But the church in Corinth, they weren't being persecuted by the world. Their problem is they were being seduced by the world. The danger was not that the church of Corinth stood out from the world. The danger in the church in Corinth was that they stood with the world. And this is what Jesus warned might happen. Jesus warned in Luke chapter 14, verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You see, the church in Corinth was in danger of losing its saltiness. And so Paul offers the solution. The solution is the gospel. Jesus is the answer. Now, one of the difficulties, though, that we're going to encounter as we start to say this letter is the same difficulty that comes when we run into listening to somebody talk on the telephone. You know, there's two parties talking, but you only hear one side of the conversation. You know, yesterday evening, my family and I were together at home when we received a phone call, as we just prayed for, from Margaret Elaine, who had slipped and fallen on the ice. And so my family was listening as I talked to her, and they heard one half of the conversation. And once I hung up, I explained to them what was happening. And immediately, different members of my family were like, oh, oh, that's not what I thought you were saying. I thought this probably happened. Or when you said this, I thought that that was going on. But the problem was they only heard half of the conversation. And so there were missing details. So they didn't have the full picture until I explained it. And we're going to find some of that in 1 Corinthians. Because we're hearing only Paul's side of a conversation that's going on with the church in Corinth. And the other thing that makes it difficult sometimes is that this is an ongoing conversation. Have you ever just walked in the middle of another conversation that two people are having 
and you have no idea what's going on, you're like, this is the weirdest conversation. How did you get here? Now, it makes total sense to the people that are in the conversation because they've been part of it up till now. But to you just stepping into an ongoing conversation, you go, I'm totally lost. Why are you talking? What are you referring to? What have you already said? Where's this going? And that's what we find with this letter to Corinth because this letter was part of a long time ongoing conversation. Because while we call this letter that we're about to study 1 Corinthians, it's not actually. We call this letter 1 Corinthians, but it's not 1 Corinthians. Because when we get to chapter 5 of this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul's going to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I wrote to you in my letter. What letter? What, what letter are you talking about, Paul? There was another letter that we don't have in our possession that had been sent to Corinth before this letter. So this letter wasn't actually 1 Corinthians because there was another letter that was first sent to them. And we don't have that letter. So scholars sometimes refer to that as 0 Corinthians. So what we call 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter that Paul sent to them. And more than that, if you keep reading your New Testament, you find that after 1 Corinthians, there's another letter called 2 Corinthians, and the problem is it's not. You see, when we get into 2 Corinthians, we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we read Paul reference a painful letter that he had sent to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. And he references a couple of other places this letter of affliction and anguish that he had to send. But we don't have that letter anymore. And so scholars sometimes call that 1.5 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is not actually 2 Corinthians. So what we actually discover is that there were at least four letters that Paul sent to Corinth. So we possess the second of those letters, which we call 1 Corinthians, and we possess the fourth of those letters that we call 2 Corinthians. And who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. But the point is that there was an ongoing conversation that was happening between Paul and the church in Corinth, and we're stepping into the middle of it. And so there's some water that's already gone under the bridge. There's shared history. There's shared context. And there are going to be things we might miss. Because not only were there at least four letters that Paul sent, but we know the church in Corinth sent him letters. Because when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to hear Paul say in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. About which you wrote. So Paul was sending letters to Corinth. Corinth was sending letters to Paul. This was an ongoing conversation. And so just as we struggle a bit when we step into the middle of a conversation, we might struggle at times as we look at this because we're stepping into the middle of a conversation. And there's going to be things referenced that were already talked about. There's going to be things that were brought up by one party or the other. We, we might not have all the context or the history. And so it might you know, trip us up a little bit as we seek to understand what's being said. Because with this letter, we've got one side of the conversation and we're entering into the middle of it. But with that introduction, 
I'm excited to study this because, friends, what this brings us back to is what we most need. What this letter brings us back to is what we most need. The gospel. It brings us back to Jesus. Because when we look at the first nine verses that Karen read for us this morning, I hope you see something abundantly clear. I hope you heard it as she read it. I hope you, it stood out to you like a sore thumb. Those first nine verses, they demonstrate something essential to understand. Paul was a one-trick pony. Paul was a one-trick pony. If you're not familiar with that phrase, one-trick pony refers to someone who has only one talent or one trick that they're capable of. And it's usually used kind of derisively as an insult. Like that person, that's the only thing they know. That's all they can do. You know, the person's just not well-rounded. Well, these opening verses tell us that Paul, he wasn't well-rounded because he was a one-trick pony. He's only got one trick. He's got one solution. He's got one hope. He's got one faith. He's got one Savior. He has one Lord, one message, one answer, and it's Jesus. In this verse, in this passage, I don't know if you noticed, there's nine verses, and nine times the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. That's a little bit of overkill there, Paul. Do you have anything else? Nope. I got one thing. It's Jesus. I have one solution. Jesus. One answer. Jesus. Again, you can follow along in your Bible, but look, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, sanctified in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, grace given you in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, enriched in Him, meaning Jesus Christ. Verse 6, testimony about Christ. Verse 7, wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, Paul's a one-trick pony here. He's only got one thing. And he's pretty proud of it. And so should we be. He says, listen, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And that's all I need. And, church in Corinth, that's all I have to offer you. Jesus, from beginning to end. Jesus. Jesus and more of Jesus. He's the answer. See, Paul's answer we're going to find to every problem that the church in Corinth is facing is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear the apostle declare in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've only got one answer, guys. One answer, and it's Jesus. And guess what? That's the only answer we need. That's the only answer we need. And we hear Paul open up this letter emphasizing that his call and his identity, where are they found? They're found in Jesus. Verse 1, he writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The, The Greek word apostle literally means a sent one. And while there's a general use of this word to refer to anyone then or now who's sent by the Lord for the expansion and establishment of his church, there was also a specific and a special use of this word, which is what Paul's using here. The apostles were specifically called by Christ. They'd seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus' original 12 followers by, used by, were used by the Lord to establish the church, to record the Scripture, and what we have recorded in our New Testament. And we're going to find in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going to describe his unusual, unlikely, and miraculous call to be included as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it's going to foreshadow one of the themes we'll find in this letter. Paul is defending his apostleship. The word apostle is used ten times in this letter, which is more than any other letter that Paul wrote. So Paul is saying, look, Jesus called me. Jesus sent me. Jesus has given me my identity and my mission. I don't work for you. I work for Him. And He's the one that I'm seeking to please, not you. Paul says, hey, listen, who I am and what I do is not defined by you. It's not defined by me. It's not defined by anything but Jesus. And church, he then turns around and he goes, you need to remember that it's the same for you too. It's the same for you too. In verse 2, he uses two words to describe the church. He uses the word sanctified and the word saints. He says, you're sanctified and you are saints. And these two words are actually really closely related in the Greek because one means to make holy, the verb means to make holy, and the other is an adjective meaning holy one. So something holy is something set apart from evil and dedicated to God's service. And Paul says, hey, listen, just as God sent me, set me apart, He set you apart, church, and He's made you a holy people. Again, it foreshadows what's going to come in the letter later because the problem in Corinth is that they weren't set apart. The problem in Corinth is that they looked just like the world around them. They were salt that had lost its saltiness. And so Paul goes, hey, listen, it's about Jesus. He calls me. He defines me. He motivates me. He sends me. And Jesus who called me, called you. He set you apart. He's made you His holy people. You are His saints. So live now your identity in Christ. Church, hear that. Live your identity in Christ. We need to pause and remember our identity in Christ. He defines us here as saints. And you're going, Adam, I know the people sitting in the pew next to me. And I know myself, we aren't any saints. But right here, you and I, church, are defined as saints, the holy ones. And I point this out because too often we identify ourselves wrongly. We identify ourselves wrongly. How often do you hear, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Friends, that's true. But church, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. That's who you were. But church, in Christ, that's not who you are. Your identity, your primary self-definition is not found in your sin. It's found in your Savior. You are a saint, a holy one set apart in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not your sin. It is your, your identity is your Savior. So stop defining yourself as a sinner and agree with the Scripture when it says you're a saint. Now, that's not to say you're perfect, because I know you're not. And I know I'm not either. We are going to struggle against sin until Christ returns to perfectly, finally, and completely set us free. Lord hates that day. However, 
Who we are in Christ is no longer defined by our sins. We are defined by our Savior. We are defined by Christ. We are set apart in Christ. We are sanctified by Christ. Sin is not our master. Sin is not our identity. Sin is not our self-definition. Jesus is. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, and the Lord says to the church today, live out your identity. You are saints, set apart in Christ. Live your identity. And verse 2 also foreshadows Paul addressing the disunity and the factions that plagued the church in Corinth and can plague us today as well. In verse 2, he says, You're called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says, We're united in Christ, so fight for that unity. Fight for that unity. We're united in Christ. And in verse 3, as Paul does in all of his letters, we hear him wish them grace and peace. Grace and peace. Every one of Paul's letters, he starts with a wish, with a blessing of grace and peace. And friends, do you know what he's wishing them? More of Jesus. Because you see, grace and peace don't come apart from Jesus. You can't have grace and peace without Jesus. So what he's wishing them is more of Jesus. He says, Here, Jesus, I want you to have more Jesus. May you have more Jesus. May you know more Jesus. This entire introduction is about Jesus because only in Jesus are grace and peace. Friends, if you are trying to find grace and peace in anything other than Jesus, it's not going to happen. All the other offers are frauds. All the other sources are counterfeits. All the other springs are poisoned. All other goods fail to satisfy. The only place where we're going to find grace and peace in this world and in our lives is in Jesus. And friends, if you're here or if you're watching us online and you're looking for grace and peace in your life, the good news is it can be found. But the only place it can be found is in Jesus. And He offers it freely. You'll find it nowhere else. You're not going to find it in other religions. You're not going to find it in being a good person. You're not going to find it in social activism. You're not going to find it in self-help. You're not going to find it in self-realization. You're not going to find it in self-expression. Grace and peace are found in Jesus alone. And the good news, the gospel, is that the offer of Jesus, the offer of grace and peace, is made to you and to me. Just as the table that we're going to come to testifies. He set that table with His broken body and His shed blood. He has poured out His grace. Why? To bring us peace with God through His sacrifice. And that's what we remember and celebrate as we come to the table at the end of the service today. And friends, it's an invitation. Do you know Jesus Christ and the grace and the peace that He's come to offer? In verses 4-7, through seven, we find another foreshadowing of some of the problems the church in Corinth is facing. See, they had a problem with spiritual gifts. And we're going to hear all about that. Because the problem with Corinth was that they were chasing after gifts, but they weren't pursuing the giver of gifts. They were chasing after gifts without loving the giver of the gift. 
And, and Paul says here, listen, Jesus is the gift. You're running after the wrong thing. Stop chasing after the gifts. Pursue the giver. Because He is the gift. And in Him are all the other gifts. In Him are all the other good things. So stop chasing after the good things and chase after Him. He is the gift. Pursue Christ because Christ is the answer. He's the solution. He's the gift. All I have in church in Corinth and church today, all you have is Christ. And verses 7-9 through emphasize, hey, the Jesus who called you is the Jesus who will sustain you, is the Jesus who's going to return for you. Jesus started it, Jesus continues it, and Jesus is going to finish it. Jesus is the beginning, Jesus is the middle, Jesus is the end. Friends, from beginning to end, Paul goes, it's all about Jesus. i got only one thing, it's Jesus. Because from beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. In Him is all things, it's grace, and it's peace, and all the gifts, and all the goodness, it's in Him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is the answer, it's all about him. And Paul promises, he says, hey, from beginning to end, it's Jesus. And in right here in the middle where you and I are living today, church in Corinth where you are, Chestnut Street where we are, in the middle today, He will sustain you. Verse 8, who, He who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because sometimes getting there feels hard. We grow weary We grow tired in the struggle, and we forget. But the promise is what we sang this morning. He will hold me fast. When I fear that my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's not your strength. It's not your ability. It's not your wisdom. It's not your faith. Christ who called you is the Christ who will sustain you, is the Christ who one day will be revealed when He returns for you. He will hold you fast. So until that day, pursue Him. Verse 9, he closes with this statement, You were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we've said before, when the Bible talks about fellowship, we need to stop thinking about like teas where we like raise our pinkies and little doilies and like social gatherings. Because fellowship, when the Bible uses it, is like fellowship of the rings. It's a group that's together on a mission where they're risking their lives together. Where they're banded together and they've got each other's back to the very end as they march into the pit of hell. That's what the Bible means by fellowship. And it says here at the end, you... You have been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, as we follow, we follow together. Our identity, our mission, our purpose is found in that we are part of a great fellowship, part of a great purpose, part of His church. And together, we follow faithfully to the end. We fight side by side. We love deeply. We forgive readily. We trust that He who called us is going to be Him who sustains us to the end until He's revealed when He returns. Keep His cause, His fellowship at the center. Because it's all about Jesus. All I have and all we have, church, is Christ. And Christ is all we need. So as we say this letter together over the next few months, we're going to find that Paul is truly a one-trick pony. But we're also going to find that that one trick is more than enough. Because that one trick 
that one answer, that one solution, that one message is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, from first to last, from call to consummation, in Christ we find our true identity. From Him will come all good gifts, and through Him is our fellowship and our purpose. So friends, let our hearts, as we study this letter, be to know Christ more. To have more of Christ. Because friends, as Paul declared, we will find, hallelujah, All I have is Christ, and Christ is all that I need. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You that Christ is all we need. I pray that He would become to us more and more. That we would desire other things less and less. That we would want Him more and more that we would see Him more and more clearly, that we would know Him more and more truly, that we would follow Him more and more faithfully, that we would have more of Him. Father, that's our prayer through this study. Give us more Jesus. Give us more Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. If the elders would come forward for the